So, well, we have a daunting task today for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, they gave me like this huge topic that's sort of like teach the entire Encyclopedia Britannica in one session, and it's like international standards and disaster relief. And so you'll see that standards and disaster are kind of highlighted because it's kind of like isn't a disaster by definition something that's you know chaotic and difficult to manage. But we'll cover a lot of ground today. And uh, my little presenter, I'll have to, I tend to wander, but I have to stay in place because my little presenter's not advancing slides, so uh, you'll have to put up with me if I, like, twitch or look like I have ADD, it's because I do. Uh, but my name is Jim Lindgren, and my uh, background is I'm boarded in um, internal medicine and pediatrics. That was difficult to do short-term missions work with, so I went back and actually got boarded in emergency medicine um, uh, to be able to kind of have the tent-making uh, opportunities to, to go and to do uh, medical missions work and then ultimately uh, boarded in disaster medicine. And now I'm full-time ministry. I have no commercial uh, backing or conflicts of interest for this session. kind of wish I did, um, but there's nobody actually uh, funding uh, this kind of uh, thing, so you can uh, be sure that this is free of commercial bias. Uh, I wear a couple other hats that we'll talk about as we go through here in both uh, standards of excellence uh, and best practices, but we got to do the little animate. Whoops, we got to get our animation in here. See if it'll work. Hang on. There we go. <laughs> I had sound effects, but it didn't quite work. So for those of you listening at home, you kind of missed it. I'm sorry. But international standards in in uh, disaster relief. So what are our, our objectives today? We want to review kind of the what is a disaster and disaster life cycle. That's pretty quick, just so we're on the same page discuss why should we have best practices or some standards to go by. We're going to talk about some myths, what not to do, some general standards of excellence, and then specifically for, for disaster. Um, and we're going to move kind of quick on some of them uh, and kind of take our time on some others. So, again, why me? Um, background, uh, niche-based medical missions for response. Um, we do some uh, consulting work in disaster relief to create partnerships for some other larger organizations. Um, uh, this was some work we did uh, in, in Haiti. NBC was filming that to make uh, one of the NGOs um, kind of rich and famous. Um, while there were about five or six organizations actually represented because uh, through partnership we were able to accomplish a lot by working together. Um, it's one of the things we'll emphasize. Um, this is a response to Japan where we did mostly some training and equipping for the relief workers. Uh, they didn't really necessarily need emergent medical care um, because of the, the nature of Japan being very uh, set up for it and there wasn't an overwhelming need for medical care, but they needed training. Uh, they needed uh, some equipment, so we're going over thyroid scanning. We've got both a digital dosimeter and some of the traditional uh, pencil dose dosimeters for some of you who was back uh, in the military once upon a time and they used to give you those things and tell you you maxed out, but it's okay. Just go back out in the field. Uh, the other hat I wear is I'm chairman of the National Steering Committee for the Standards of Excellence in Short-Term Mission, and so we have some best practice guidelines for all short-term mission entities, uh, not just uh, um, in disaster relief. And on our website, we actually make those documents available if you want to take a look at those um, on the SOE.org website. Brand new website just launched. I broke it last night for a few minutes and then had to uh, uh, get it up and running again, so we're, we're back in it. I will warn you, though, um, there is some risks in doing disaster relief. That's what I looked like before I started doing disaster medicine. <laughs> this is a recent scan of my brain, so I just want to warn you. Um, so what's the definition of disaster? We can talk about the fancy definition, a natural or man-made event that suddenly or significantly disrupts the environment of care and treatment, 
or increases demands for an organization's services. So that's our JCO definition, really fancy. If you're like me, maybe you want something that's just a little bit simpler. So um, an event that exceeds the capabilities of the response, or if that's even too much to remember, which it is for me, then I have one more here, which is the, what I call the GEICO. Needs are greater than the resources, right? So we talk about uh, mass casualty um, incidents or multiple casualty incidents, right? So your multiple car wreck on the interstate in the U.S. where there's multiple trauma centers around is a multiple casualty incident, but it's not mass casualty where the, the needs are outstripping the resources because we can fly them to various medical centers and catch up. Disaster is just... Um, the, the opposite scenario where the needs are actually greater than the resources. So we'll try to throw in some pictures so we can kind of keep it fun because we got a lot to cover. Um, the disaster life cycle, uh, the red spot here on the top of this wheel is the actual event, and this is where the response occurs. Then we have all the rest of this wheel that we can tend to forget about. So you've got recovery, mitigation, and preparedness. So the next time something happens, because there are parts of the world where we know a disaster is going to strike again, the problem is, is we spend lots of time in there, and guess what? Disasters go round and round and happen again, but we focus on that one little area there um, for a couple of reasons. What are those reasons? Why do you think it's, we have so much emphasis here and not so much on all the rest of this? It's easier to raise funding, right? People have an immediate response. The first seven days, people give a lot of money. You can wear your fancy T-shirts like the one I had there in Japan where... You know, it's easier to recruit people and all that. But keep in mind that the disaster life cycle is much longer than that, and we need to be spending a significant amount of our time and our efforts in here. And so the fact that you're here, I'm preaching to the choir, because we want to be prepared for the disaster and make sure we're not just focusing on that response and then taking off out of the country, leaving people in the same state that they were in or unprepared for the next response. So why best practices? I put this up, obviously, because... Red Cross disaster relief, but I like this no step, and I was trying to figure out for the life of me how in the world I'd be able to step on that. Um, those are the things that keep me entertained with my ADD. Uh, so why best practices? This slide says foreign aid, when you take money from the poor people in a rich country and give it to the rich people in a poor country, right? Because corrupt governments, um, bad systems uh, tend to take a lot of the funding and uh, strip it away from what we were trying to accomplish. Here's another uh, African leader that says, we ask the French for money, they give it to us, then we waste it. Uh, actual quote that said. And so we don't want to continue that practice, and so best practices are important. So we say the best practices are both right and they're true. Remember when Jesus turned the water into wine, his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? Do you remember what the comments were by the bridegroom? Wow, you saved the best for last. So what Christ provided in the example that we have is that um, we're to do our very best when we do these things, to take in quality products, uh, really good practice mechanisms and methods, and give our very best when we, when we reach out. And that was the, the story in John 2, verses 1 through 11. We don't want to do just good enough or have the attitude that, well, it's better than what they have, so we'll just give them our second best or the, the castaways that we don't want. Anybody remember what Ecclesiastes 9.10 says? about whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. We want to do things really well. And we can strive for excellence. We can get there. So how do we do it? Because by definition, a disaster means the needs are greater than the resources. So how is it even possible? Or how can we be excellent in the face of mass need and chaos? 
Well, first let's talk about some myths. And we want to bust some myths here and see if we can't uh, get past some things. So, disaster myth number one. Foreign medical volunteers with any kind of medical background are needed. So, anybody can go, anybody can do whatever they want. And we see this frequently. When you see somebody with a drill in their hand approaching somebody's head, um, you might be surprised that they're not always a neurosurgeon when you're on the disaster scenario. And the reality is the local population almost always is able to respond to those immediate life-saving needs. Um, And in a case like Haiti, where you have 200,000 casualties and and 200,000 dead, um, then that's kind of an extreme example of a need. But still, we want to stick within our scope of practice and uh, make sure that we're doing our very best for the folks. And really, we need the medical personnel with the skills that aren't available there and to be thinking about building capacity. We'll talk more about this. Myth number two, any kind of international assistance is needed, and it's needed right now. And so we do what we call a push strategy, and we just send a bunch of stuff in, and sometimes the stuff that gets sent in clogs up airports. I don't know how many people responded to Haiti um, or spent some time down there after that disaster, spent any time in and around the Port-au-Prince airport in the first couple of days where you could not get around the airport. I mean, literally, you could spend four hours trying to get from one side of the airport to the other side of the airport, and um, spend your entire day not even being able to kind of mobilize or move because it was just gridlocked. And uh, some of the supplies that were there were important, um, but in disasters, a lot of things get sent. And there's kind of a balance between the push and the pull strategy that we'll talk about. But we want to make sure that, you know, a hasty response that's not based on a measured evaluation only contributes to the chaos. So you may not be there to be able to do that immediate assessment, but if you have partnerships in place or you're working with organizations that are already on the ground, you can get that assessment. So when we responded to Japan, we responded at the invitation of a crisis center that knew what their need were and said, this is what we need. So we went and we filled a niche. And it wasn't necessarily the most glamorous niche to go in and bring equipment and just to do lectures and and, um, tell people, but it was a niche that needed to be filled and it was based on an assessment. And then on the ground, you want to do your further assessment. We'll talk about the the push versus the pull. So how about disaster myth number three? Disasters bring out the worst in human behavior. And while we do see some actual examples of some antisocial behavior or some people that are, um, you know, taking advantage of the situation, by and large, the vast majority of the population really works together. And you see that, whether it's in our country with September 11th or in any disaster around the world, where people will mobilize and they'll be trying to dig people out of the rubble. It actually might even be taking some risks that we need to try to help mitigate to make sure that they're not running in like canaries into a situation that's not safe. Myth number four, the affected population is too shocked and helpless to take responsibility for their own survival. And we talked about that just now, that people will mobilize and they will work together, and you'd be amazed at the kind of resolve that people have um, to do work, and one of the kids that uh, that helped us and worked with us in Haiti had been trapped himself in a school that had collapsed, and he was one of the most unbelievable examples of somebody that that uh, both needed an, an enormous amount of counseling and attention, but was an incredible blessing to to those that came in to help um, during that crisis. How about myth number five? Locating disaster victims in temporary settlements is the best alternative. We put people into tent cities or we call them fancy names and different things. And, you know, sometimes when the entire infrastructure is wiped out or when there's a huge refugee population that moves across the border, you may not have a lot of choice. But keep in mind that when you concentrate people into that kind of an environment, 
Um, you're making a microcosm of risk, right? There's not necessarily police safety, security, particularly at night um, for young girls that need to use the latrine, those kind of things. Uh, it's an abnormal environment. It's not home. Um, there's also uh, the chance for disease spreading. can also divert funds when we pour in a lot of money and we put together, you know, tents and, and all these temporary structures that might be able to be used for building infrastructure. So some disasters in the world, and we've seen this happen in communities in El Salvador during flooding, where people will get temporary re- relocated either with a family or uh, the church will pool together and everybody will take a different family in during the one or two weeks of the significant flooding. And then the work can be on uh, responding to that and trying to do rebuilding rather than putting a bunch of resources into a temporary solution. And again, some situations like refugee resettlement um, or massive infrastructure uh, damage um, may mandate these kind of temporary settlements, but they're not ideal and they're very difficult to close down and they're very difficult to make healthy. How about this myth? Disasters are random killers. And the reality that disasters strike the poorest uh, areas and the people that are most at risk. And the people that are the, at the greatest risk are those that don't have the resources to respond. They don't have a bank account to be able to just go and stay in a hotel, whether it's domestic or international, um, especially uh, single moms, children, and the elderly. Things are back to normal within a few weeks. Do we think that's true? Remember that little disaster life cycle wheel, how most of it's like this big wheel that's green that has all these other phases in it? And there's only a little tiny sliver of that that's the actual uh, initial response and event. Uh, it takes a long time to recover from a disaster. And you look at New York as an example where there's uh, lots of interest, lots of response, lots of uh, money to pour in, uh, both because of there's a, an incredible commercial opportunity. Um, and we're still seeing rebuilding going on you know, a decade later. And so it takes a long time, and it may take a lifetime of continued care particularly when we talk about psychological issues. Um, you know, the losses that people experience don't go away overnight. Starving people can eat anything, and we've seen that. We've seen containers filled with all kinds of different food stuff sent in that are not necessarily culturally appropriate or even nutrient appropriate in certain situations. And the reality is that while people that are starving may be very, very hungry, uh, it may be very difficult for them to have an appetite because of all the stress that they're under or to eat unfamiliar foods. Um, and to eat long enough or an adequate enough diet. And so we need to try to make our response appropriate for what people will need and, and strategize that, obviously, ahead of time. That's why pre, pre-disaster planning is so important. Refugees can manage with less. You know, they don't have anything, so whatever we can give them is going to be good. And remember, we dehumanize the refugee when we think that way. Even in food, they often need more than normal requirements uh, just to survive because there's a massive increase you know, in the caloric needs just to uh, be in the elements or to survive the injuries that they have. And we need to make sure that we're doing our absolute best and go back to that Cana of Galilee example of if we're going to do something in the name of God, let's do it the absolute best that we can and try to, try to do it with excellence. Myth number 10, children with diarrhea should not be intensively fed. So we focus on oral rehydration, and that's, that's great, but we also need to remember that nutrients need to be introduced uh, because the microvilli of the gut will start to atrophy and slough, and our absorbing capacity goes down. And so we do need to introduce caloric loads um, and make sure that we're doing that early uh, while we have time. Okay, so we're going to talk, we talked about some myths, now let's talk a little bit about what not to do, get some pictures in here to make us have fun, because bad things 
can happen. I love that uh, still action photo there. So bad things can happen. What are some specific pitfalls in disaster relief? Well, going because we want to go, not because we're called to go. Um, when we were in the Dominican Republic getting ready to go over to Haiti, I had somebody come up to me and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so. Can I get a ride into Haiti? And I'm like, well, who are you and why are you here? And he was like, well, my name is so-and-so and I just want to help. He wasn't there with an organization, didn't have a plan, got on an airplane, took up a seat that maybe somebody that had skills could have taken and um, showed up and was not prepared to take care of himself with food, clothing, water, shelter, any of that stuff. And so we want to be careful that, you know, if God puts it on your heart and the, the Holy Spirit's guiding you to be a part of it, that's wonderful, but be a part of a good strategy. We use a push strategy where we send stuff into country, uh, and in the early phase of a disaster, we may, we may need to take a good guess and try to get the things in that we know are going to be needed based on where the disaster is, the kind of population that's affected. If it's flooding, we know the kind of diseases to anticipate. Um, but what happens is sometimes we push in a bunch of inappropriate resources. Um, so uh, you, you might get just truckload after truckload of body bags in a place where there's not a high mortality rate. So then what can you do? And people get creative and they can use body bags to become tents and all these kind of things. But better to put the kind of resources in with a pull strategy based on assessment um, than it is just to push in a bunch of uh, uh, resources that aren't needed or unsorted or worthless medications. There's example after example of disasters that take place around the world where it takes six months for people to even go through and inventory the medications that are sent in. Uh, There is one example that took place in Eastern Europe after an example where so much expired ointment was sent into country that it was hundreds of thousands of dollars to dispose of that got dumped onto that area. And it was very convenient for whoever donated that. It's a huge gift in kind to write off for your organization, but we want to make sure that we're actually sending the resources in that need to be sent in. So we talk about trying to transition from a push strategy in the early first couple of days to a pull strategy where you're actually pulling in the resources you need. So if you need fuel or diesel, you pull in that kind of resource. If you need um, deworming medication, then you pull in that kind of uh, resources. Um, Don't just send in things uh, willy-nilly. Lowering our practice standards or taking inappropriate roles. Um, If I go, I shouldn't be practicing neurosurgery because I'm not a neurosurgeon. And, you know, our goal is to first do no harm. And uh, we need to realize that a disaster is not a time where we just say, well, we can just do whatever we want, um, that we need to do things appropriately. Now, you can get trained uh, ahead of time and prepare yourself so that maybe your skill sets are greater than what they are now. But don't use the disaster as an excuse to just do whatever you want or you can, uh, you know, uh, practice any kind of, whether it's medicine or other kind of uh, engineering standards going in and saying this building is safe if you know nothing about construction. Uh, We want to make sure that we're using appropriate practice standards and rules. Bribery uh, kills smaller organizations and NGOs. Big organizations that pay money so that the inspectors don't go through their containers. Uh, guess who can't do that? Smaller NGOs that might actually be more effective in the community than the bigger organizations that might have relationships um, or working on those things. Exploitation, we'll give a couple examples of that. We do it in short-term missions um, and in disaster relief when we go in and take all of our pictures and we don't actually make lasting differences in the community. We need to be careful of that. How about criminal behavior? Remember that great example of 
just uh, running the border with the kids. Um, we want to try to avoid that. And lack of proper risk management for yourself, your team members, or those that you're caring for. Right? Are you giving your team members adequate risk declarations so that they know what they're getting into when you go down there and say, look, there's not going to be police. The military is not there yet. Um, we're we're going to have to be self-contained, food, water, our own shelter, all that kind of stuff. Um, are you prepared for kidnap or ransom? Uh, if something should happen, what's your plan in place ahead of time? Because believe me, once it happens, um, it makes a disaster even worse. Um, do you have malpractice insurance for your patients? We always do, and there are ways to do that. Um, because we want to care for them the same way we would care for patients here in the States. And you need to make sure that you think about these things ahead of time. So these are some of the specific pitfalls. So when we talk about standards, some of what we talk about is what not to do as part of it. We'll get into a more kind of more um, promotive uh, mode as we go through the slides and talk about it. But we don't want to be this bird, right, the canary in the coal mine to tell us that there's a problem. Um, And that's what we see a lot of times with disaster relief teams is they'll rush in uh, where angels fear to tread. We talk about this example in um, basic and advanced disaster life support uh, about uh, hydrogen sulfide gas. You know, the one guy goes in the tank and passes out, so the next guy goes in to get him, um, doesn't have adequate uh, ventilation and breathing equipment. Guess what happens to him? You know, he passes away as well. We need to realize that um, uh, we need to think like we're taught to think uh, in uh, preparation, which is, Um, What do I see here and smell? Do I notice that all the insects are dead, that there's multiple farm animals dead? What's going on with the people around? Are there multiple victims? Um, Am I uphill, upwind of the situation because there may be a chemical, biological, or nuclear release? These are the things that you want to think about ahead of time. And it's amazing. I talk about the fallout picnic where people that have no monitoring equipment whatsoever are just driving along in Japan and just getting out of the car and wandering around and have no idea what, what their risk is whatsoever. Um, as it turned out there, uh, the three plants that melted down gave a more uniform distribution of uh, radioiodine and cesium. But if you don't have the right monitoring equipment, you really have no idea what you're getting into because guess what? You can't see, hear, or smell radiation. Uh, And those are the kind of things that we need to think about in disaster medicine. How about driving in foreign countries, Port-au-Prince, for example, or or other places? We just lost a... um, uh, Pastor uh, Leo Godzic with the National Association of Marriage Enhancement this last uh, week in Uganda in a traffic accident that claimed uh, four people's lives. And it's the number one risk that we take in short-term missions or disaster relief are traffic accidents. Because guess what? We're getting into older vehicles, maybe people that uh, aren't as good of drivers, or maybe we're driving and we probably shouldn't be, right? So we always recommend against that. Or are we wearing seatbelts? Or is there even seatbelts? It's the obvious things that that can get us into trouble. And every disaster is different and poses different risks and needs. So we need to to, um, be aware of those. What are the risks? So here's a building um, where a team is staying in Haiti. Uh, Notice there is some uh, earthquake damage. So who's going to take the the initiative to figure out should we have our team there or not? Um, You know, fortunately, there are engineers that responded that can help with those kind of things. Uh, what about, this is a military entourage here. You notice the guy in the front there with his uh, uh, piece of equipment there who actually asked me to step back, and I responded very positively and affirmatively because um, sometimes these situations aren't safe. This is a military installation. Um, but we have to keep in mind that sometimes we're working in war zones and other places. What about the psychological risks? What about this child who came in with a, fr- a fractured leg, 
um, and a poorly cared for wound because there wasn't medical care who desperately needs intensive care and there isn't any. Um, what does that do to your team member when you take them into that situation? Are they prepared for that? Are they kind of old calloused ER docs um, that have been there and seen that and, and, you know, psychologically are better prepared to deal with that? Um, or is it like some of the people that we've seen where the pastor wants to go and help his medical response team and gets put into a situation where he's never seen any of this stuff before and is just absolutely devastated um, the first day in country. And we've seen that, um, the risks that take place with that. This was one of the more dignified burials that took place in Port-au-Prince uh, as opposed to the mass graves. Um, are we prepared? Are, is our team prepared to deal with some of this stuff? Because we can leave our team members with lifelong psychological scars if we're not careful. Okay, exploitation. We'd never do that, right? So this is a cartoon. I took a picture off of the wall. Uh, in one of the UN logistic offices. It's not UN sanctioned. It was just something that they put up. So there's a guy running from the beach to help the guy that's drowning, swims out to him, steals his watch. So we think about that stuff, about exploitation. We would never do that kind of stuff or or be that kind of calloused with it. But my question is, is taking somebody's dignity any different than stealing their watch? And I'd like to think that it may be worse. So here's, maybe you've seen this floating around the Internet. This says... For only $5 a month, you can help continue photographing this child. Right? We have a new policy with our own organization that if we're going to actually take photos or try to do promotion, we have to be committed to long-term follow-up. We should be getting informed consent, ideally, or at least asking permission of people to take photographs before we plaster them over our websites and all over our, our newsletters, and we only saw them once for maybe two minutes. We talk about that um, in uh, some of our short-term mission, or uh, even the chain network talks about it in the crossing the, the river kind of examples. So we need to be careful. We also want to give the right aid at the right time. So that's part of that push-pull strategy. This was a, a statement made by the United Nations in December of 2010. So it's like, what's wrong with this picture? Here's the homeless guy that's hanging out with a shopping cart and his dog who's got the laptop wireless connection. That might not be the kind of care that he needs. And these are... Uh, um, these are just examples to kind of give us word pictures of, of doing the right things. Are we there for short-term or long-term commitment? This is a famous picture of, of a, a patient uh, that's clinging to a Western aid worker. Um, and if you're taking your team there, let's say you have to walk away from that person. Are you prepared for that? Are you able to do that? Or is it the right thing to be able to leave that person because you're only there for a day or a week? Um, what kind of psychological trauma can we cause to our team members by not having them prepared for that kind of situation? Is, is it a possibility that we could cause, cause PTSD in our own workers? And so some word pictures to remember that. What should we do? Good things can happen, right? So we talk about what not to do in terms of standards, but what kind of things can we strive for? So general goals. All of our efforts should be working towards something that's sustainable, that's culturally appropriate, right? The food stuff should probably be what they're no- normally used to eating if we can accomplish that. Uh, and not uh, strange things that, that we think would be just good enough. Um, it should be indigenously owned pro- programs utilizing local resources so that we don't send in all of our own materials. And guess who goes out of business? All of the shipping supply people. Even pharmaceutical companies have gone out of business. Clinics have gone out of business because of the response that takes place. And ultimately, early on, we may have to do 
uh, a bigger role in a disaster that has overwhelming proportions, but ultimately we want to be working towards this sustainable, culturally appropriate, indigenously owned and with local resources. So that's the general big picture stuff. And if we look at the seven standards of excellence, which that SOE website uh, talks about, we talk about some of those things. And you can actually go there and download the documents that it talks about being God-centered or having empowered partnerships and mutual design. Where we're not going in saying, this is what you guys need. Or tell us what your needs are and we'll take care of that. But we're working together to solve the problems and making sure that we're empowering our, our uh, international partners to be the ones that have ownership. We have comprehensive administration like risk management, uh, appropriate insurances, qualified leadership, appropriate training, and thorough follow-up. So you can download that from the site. Um, but these are some general principles. Now let's talk about disaster. So good response comes from experience and preparation and mitigation in that life cycle, right? If this, then that. So you notice on marathon routes that there's different aid stations there, both to provide water and rehydration, um, salts, those kind of things, sports drinks. But we also have paramedics there, right? Why? Because we expect something's going to happen when somebody's in mile 20 or 21 or 22. Same kind of thing when we stock essential medications for deployment. So we have two par values in our offices right now should we need to respond tomorrow. We know basically what we're going to need depending on whether it's a flood, or whether it's orthopedic emergencies like Haiti, um, and we have those things prepared in advance. You might have your go kit ready to go whether it's a warm climate or a cold climate because you're going to have different kind of clothing requirements as well for your team. By having known standards in place, we establish these clear guidelines and boundaries so that when we get deployed, we can try to help get towards managed chaos. And again, these are some general. And I always go back to it. Safety first. Don't add to the problem, right? You want to be self-contained. We took our own water in Japan because we didn't know exactly where we would be. So we took water. We took food. We took all the shelter we'd need. Same for Haiti. Um, because you have to be prepared for the worst-case scenario. Work towards a pull versus a push strategy and practice within your scope. Um, go because you're needed. Don't exploit. Right? The disaster is not the time for substandard care. And helping without hurting. You know, Fickert's uh, book, those things are very important principles. Don't overpay or pay bribes. So one day I needed to get around the Port-au-Prince airport. Don't tell my wife that I hopped on a moto taxi. It cost me a dollar to go from one side to the other. The next day, after all these aid workers came and a lot of the news crews, guess how much they wanted? 20 bucks to go one kilometer on a moto taxi. So keep in mind that what you do today may affect everybody tomorrow. Local law trumps all, so it doesn't matter what you think. You don't have any rights in a foreign country if you're locked up in their jail system. Um, nobody may give you a phone call. Uh, you may get stuck. There are some standards through the Red Cross and Red Crescent you can search for. It's the IDRL, but they're mostly for the countries, how to set up their custom systems, how to set up their plans. And in terms of international standards for what we're supposed to do, these are the things we're trying to establish both through this session. Jody College is also teaching more um, specific techniques for when you're on the ground, some of the things that you can do in terms of community health and whatnot. Um, Arnie Gorski has his materials that he makes available, and I'll have the links at the very end here. And work with the local authorities. Don't go as a parachute organization. Um, very likely you'll get permission to work with the Ministry of Health if you do it properly. Okay, so here's a busy slide, but one that kind of summarizes the important things that we want to think about. Medical disaster standards. So ideally we're planning our uh, response based on a site assessment. Uh, the El Salvador example is what I have there. So that when we got there, we took what we needed, 
but we also walked around the community before we decided what our response was going to be. See what happened in the houses. See what's going on with the latrines. See what kind of diseases the people are displaying. Work with the local pastors, uh, missionaries, and authorities and see what is it that you need and then base your response on that rather than just going in and saying one size fits all. You know, what we have is Tylenol, worming pills, and vitamins, so therefore everybody has those ailments. And that's not the best response um, to have. We want licensed practitioners practicing within their scope of training. We want quality medications if we're going to be running pharmacy with child safety controls. It's a lot harder to do that, but it's the appropriate thing. Um, We know there's lots of poisonings that take place in the United States. We have no idea what happens necessarily in the short-term mission world or in our disaster response when we're handing out pills and packages where there's not even a cupboard to hide things in the, in the, in the hut or in the, in the house, right? They might be staying in a tent. There's no place to even hide those things. And guess what? Pills are very pretty and attractive um, to kids all around the world. So do the right thing. Uh, make sure that you have malpractice insurance or a mechanism to compensate patients if you do harm them or at least to even know that you did harm somebody. How do you do that? You're working with permission to practice, and hopefully you're also working with a referral system. What do you do when somebody comes that has something that's uh, a need greater than you can respond to? Is you want to be able to know where to send them, and they should be able to know how to contact you with you well after the, the response. Know your limits. And here's the kind of the gold standard to me, is you should feel comfortable allowing your own family to be treated in your medical outreach. And if you're not, um, you might not necessarily choose the location under the, under the apricot tree or something like that, um, but you should feel comfortable with the kind of practice mechanisms and methods um, on your own family. So last couple of word pictures work together. The Killick Coast Guard base put this nice little sign up. It says, our aim is to serve the lives of these fantastic Haitian people in their hour of dire need. We'll do that if we work together and fuse um, all of our... Um, institutional efforts into one casualty machine. It's that simple. And there were multiple different countries, uh, military and civilian systems working together, and it was a tremendous place to see. And no one of those entities could have done it. It's the same as the picture at the beginning that I talked about uh, when five or six different groups were working together um, in Haiti. Uh, One body with many parts, we can accomplish a lot. Get Better, their other sign they put up, says every day we will work together to get 10% better. So remember, we're going into chaos. Our first goal is to manage the chaos and then ultimately to work on that rehabilitation recovery and do the whole rest of that disaster life cycle wheel rather than getting stuck there. Utilize local resources. So this gentleman in the middle was my uh, Haitian driver and bodyguard. You notice his arms are much bigger than my arms. Um, he, He knew the streets. Um, he knew the streets of New York. He knew the streets of Haiti. This is his family that I had the very rare privilege of being able to go into that neighborhood and being a part of that, and I could do that because he was there with me, uh, watching my back, telling me what I should, shouldn't do. Um, but in addition, keeping us honest uh, and making sure that we were doing things culturally appropriately. Um, so a few other recommended strategies, right? Is your mission accomplished? You get the glamour shot, right? And I put this on purpose. We got a couple different people that we were representing at the time, making partnerships. Um, but no, you're not done at that point. Um, that's the first little slice of the disaster life cycle, right? And if we stick, stick there, it's like that T-shirt dollar sign picture. Um, and we can kind of get stuck. So here's a few links you may want to write down. Um, 
because there's uh, actually some some uh, resources out there. The American Medical Association actually sponsors basic and advanced disaster life support classes. I actually took the one uh, in Mississippi, um, and it's a great one. Um, there are others around the country where you can learn both basic and advanced disaster life supports. They have some specific training for um, hazardous materials. So what happens when the hospital is flooded and nuclear medicine has a bunch of stuff floating around and all the uh, radioactive iodine that they'd normally give a patient and run away and say, see you later, you know, um, when that's just kind of floating around. You, we have to realize that there are chemical plants that exist in cities that, that get flooded. Uh, there may be risks that are there, and we need to train and prepare for, for those kind of things. The World Health Organization and, and PAHO have uh, websites. Uh, I mentioned the seven standards that are there. Global Chain Network, uh, we're working on some materials as well. Um, together jointly on a disaster response, both to uh, try to train responders, but also communities to be prepared for what do we do when the flood comes? What do we do when the earthquake comes? How do we take care of our neighbors when there is that kind of a need? And then uh, Arnie Gorski's uh, Health Education Program for Developing Countries. It's a more difficult URL to remember, the Health Education Program for Developing Countries, so hepfdc.info. Illustrations on community health um, that you could actually put together a picture book and teach people how to put together latrines properly, how to boil their water, how to do oral rehydration. Um, And that works really well in disaster response, much better than our brigade-style clinic mentality that we do over and over. While that may be needed, um, the greatest amount of the population can be served by taking care of the 70% of those diseases that we can care with uh, waterborne illnesses and health and hygiene. So keep that in mind. Um, And if you need to, I'll keep this around as well. But I'll back up to this slide here, too, um, if you want to take a peek at that. But I want to give you a couple minutes to ask some questions. I know that um, we're supposed to be done at 5.15, which is in three minutes, and it's dinner break. So I don't want to be the guy that keeps you from getting in line for that. So any quick questions? I know it's a lot to cover. We talk about a lot of what not to, and and we start getting into some of what to do. But since we all kind of have different roles, we want to make sure we give you a chance to ask some questions. Yeah? What's your thought about um, sending medication? Say you're in Haiti. or Well, I'm going to use Spanish. Some places they speak Spanish. You're sending, say, Tylenol or just things we take for granted home with someone. And even if it's labeled in Spanish, dosage, usage, all of that, and you've got a person who can't read. Right. What do you... Well, it's interesting because one of the things Arnie and I were talking about this week is when you go in and do a post-interview follow-up at that house and ask them, how are you supposed to take this medication? You'd be absolutely surprised how many people have no clue. There are ways of being able to do that. Um, my wife is Costa Rican, and so our, she's done some of the translation for some of these materials, and we talk about this frequently because... Having the adequate personnel, if you're running a pharmacy in a foreign country, both the safety and the instructions are important. And taking the time in a busy brigade-style clinic to do that properly takes super discipline. And my wife is sort of our gatekeeper of that to be able to make sure that patients respond back to you. And guess how many people will come up when you say, you know, uh, Maria Gonzalez? And a lady will show up and you start explaining medications. And she's Maria Gonzalez, but she's Maria Gonzalez de Fernandez, not de Hernandez. And it's important to be able to know that. And guess what? If you don't speak the language natively every single day, 
you're very likely to make mistakes. And so those kind of um, uh, concerns are very valid, and there are a lot of things going there. And I don't know, Jeff, if you have more specific things since that, you know, pharmacy is your world, but um, it's a challenge. You never ask. You ask them their name, not say it to them. There's a huge saving there. Don't say Maria Gonzalez. Say, what is your name? And they'll say the whole thing back because they're just want to, they normally just answer yes no matter what you ask in general. But um, there's a lot of times you can use picture instructions, which there's multiple organizations that have picture instructions for the non-reading. But and then having them explain it back to you. Yeah, and have them explain it back to you, every single one of them. But that takes time. But in America, we don't have adherence either, so. Yeah. Exactly. And I thought, well, so you give somebody who's got three kids right. a drug, and it's different for Here's each child. And yeah. So that I'm, really helps. Yeah. yeah. Um, and get them labeled for the right patient. Yeah, what we see a lot of times is the mom with five kids. That by the time all you know, all six of them have been been seen, they have like a they look like Walgreens um, or Walmart. I can't be commercially biased here, uh, but they have all kinds of medicines and they have no idea what's for which kid. And guess what? The kids won't either. They'll just start, you know, if it's shiny, if it smells good. Um, I always threaten to abuse the uh, liquid albuterol because it smells better than anything else that we have in any of our clinics. But guess what? Kids are going to do that too, and so we have to be very very careful. Um, it takes a lot of time and discipline to do it well. That's a great question. Other questions? Concerns? Make sure that you fill out the, the little evaluation. Um, and you can put the boring score on there. or the We really like the picture of the guy getting hit in the face with a soccer ball. Um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think you can do it online and they have the little forms. Um, and then make sure you get to dinner. And uh, thanks, you guys. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Does anybody need those links again, or we'll put them up there just in case? And feel free to shoot us emails or whatever. Did the other Jeff talk to you about Calamityville, our project with Calamityville? Yeah, a yeah. little bit, and I yeah, and I really want to touch base with. Well, one.